Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number two in our discussion of the War of the Jewels. Um, two quick announcements today. First, today is the day the first chapter of my book dropped, the first installment of my book, which is the first chapter of my book. Well, it's chapter 0 0.1, which means chapter 0. I'm going to be correlating my chapters with the chapters in the Fellowship of the Ring, of course, and chapter 0 means the prologue. Uh, so it's going to be 0 0.1. Um, the first of the of my chapters, since I'm going to be writing three-ish chapters per chapter, is what it looks like per chapter of the original text. Um, so anyway, chapter zero point one is uh, is what is uh, what's happening here. So um, uh, anyway, so that just dropped today for uh, the everyone who has subscribed uh, to my book through the Signum University Press. So um, I just want to encourage you guys again to uh, look into that. It's uh, it's try to try to make it as inexpensive as possible. It's two bucks a month, uh, and you'll be getting a, a chapter a month for the next three years, basically, while I write three years ish, um, while I write my way through what is going to be, you know, the last thing I ever write on The Lord of the Rings. This book is, you know, this is the first volume, I'm, I'm writing a six-volume series, which is going to be basically like, you know, the sum total of my career thoughts on The Lord of the Rings, essentially. Um, so, it's, um, anyway, and you can be part of that as it as it happens here, as it unfolds. Um, so again, that's two bucks a month. Go to blackberry.signumuniversity.org and go to the Signum Press uh, site of there, you'll see the little Signum area, Signum Press area, um, and you'll find, uh, you can you look at me, look up the book or look up me, uh, and you can find how to subscribe. You can subscribe to the ebook version, you can subscribe to the audio version. Um, I'm doing a, 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 an abridged recording, um, an audiobook version. Of course I am, as that's all I read myself, so uh, uh, it would be silly not to. Uh, but anyway, I do an unabridged reading of each chapter every month, so if you so you can get the audiobook month by month as well there too. Um, so anyway, that is um, uh, uh, that is the the exciting thing from today. Today was the the release of my first chapter. Um, so. Uh, Okay, the um, that was the first announcement. Second announcement is don't forget that MythMoot is coming up. MythMoot uh, in uh, re registration is now open, um, and we have uh, so you can still get early bird pricing uh, on MythMoot. Um, that is also you can sign up for that also through BlackBerry. Go to blackberry.signumuniversity.org, uh, and you will see an events section, and there you can uh, click on the link to register for MythMoot. You'll see um, that MythMoot, uh, MythMoot 10, yes, our theme is Homeward Bound uh, this year. Um, I, I, MythMoot is always so much fun. And this year, it's going to be even cooler because we actually have a, um, we have like a, 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 a kids zone. Like we, we're, we, we're having a dedicated kids area and they're special. You can, uh, you know, sign up to bring your kids. Um, so not that like people who like to come to MythMoot and leave their children at home won't still be welcomed <laughs> to do that if they would like to. I know that there are many people for whom that is a nice feature of MythMoot. However, um, if you would like to bring your kids, we're we're going to be we're going to be doing um, activities for them. We're going to have a special room for the kids. Um, it were it's one of the things that is uh, differentiating MythMoot this year from previous years is that we are being more. Um, 
uh, more deliberately family-friendly from the beginning this year. So, anyhow, that is... um, uh, Those are the things that are happening today. So, um, also, um, first... One last uh, uh, little uh, sort of housekeeping matter um, for those who and this is just for those who are attending live uh, for those who are attending live. I just wanted to uh, uh, remind or inform you um, that in addition to that, I am monitoring the chat interface uh, in Twitch and YouTube as I usually do. But um, we are also beginning with this discussion here on the War of the Jewels. We are also beginning to do. Um, we have an, we have a channel for this uh, uh, in our uh, Signum Discord server as well. So those of you who attend the Tuesday night sessions live will be familiar with that. That's what we've been using since the beginning uh, now for six years um, in exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, I'm shifting over to using that also uh, in Mythgard Academy, uh, and that should be um, uh, that should be uh, cool. Uh, that should be a lot of fun. One of the advantages of it is that if you uh, can, if you come in through Discord, you can hear me in real time and not on a five-second delay. So, like when I ask a question, you can respond to the question, and we don't have to wait <laughs> five seconds uh, before you even hear my question. Um, so, anyway, I just wanted to um, uh, draw people's attention to that. I'm going to be monitoring both, but. Um, uh, definitely going to be um, keeping an eye on the Discord channel too. It's I'm, I'm, it is my hope that that will sort of become um, the home of our discussions here. And one of the things that's nice about that, one of the reasons I like that, is that of course the Twitch chat is only open when I'm broadcasting, right? But the Discord channel is there all the time, and so people, uh, you know, uh, the majority of people who are listening to this are either watching or listening to this asynchronously. And so there would be an opportunity for people who have thoughts or questions or observations to come in and and participate in some asynchronous discussion uh, through the Discord channel as well. So um, I like that as an option. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I am shifting towards uh, towards Discord usage here. But as I say, I am going to be trying to... Um, uh, I am going to be trying to monitor both as much as I can. Um, all right. Let us begin our discussion. I would like to begin our text discussion tonight um, by observing uh, sincerely and in a heartfelt manner how much I admire the work that Christopher Tolkien did in putting together the Silmarillion. I am extremely grateful uh, for the work that he did, and I admire enormously the work that he did in putting together the Silmarillion. In many ways, I look at the more we are sort of learning together about the Silmarillion texts and the history of the Silmarillion texts as we go through the history of Middle-earth, the more I sort of marvel at how unified the Silmarillion feels, how the extent to which Christopher Tolkien succeeded in creating a version, you know, this sort of com- compilation of his father's Silmarillion writings, which you're able just to read. And I know many people, including me when I was younger, um, struggle reading it the first time. There are many different sort of reasons for that. Um, but that's none of them are Christopher's fault. And um, 
in any case, it is it is remarkable, I think, how well it holds together. And um, anyway, I wanted to start with that those complimentary remarks towards Christopher Tolkien and his work, uh, because I, I know that it is possible that some of the things I'm going to be saying are going to sound like I'm ungrateful or critical, overcritical of Christopher um, and his work on the Silmarillion. It is not so, and I want to make that perfectly clear from the beginning. Um, now, let me go on to say the things that I was thinking you might misinterpret. Um, so, <clears throat> one of the things that there have been several points, especially in these later works, um, uh, that is, especially in Morgoth's Ring and the War of the Jewels, where um, we are reading, I mean, I'm sure when you were reading, um, which what we read today was basically um, the first manuscript of the Grey Annals, the Grey Annals, Grey Annals 1, um, uh, for today's class. Uh, that's pretty much what we're going to be discussing. And, um, and I'm sure if you know the Silmarillion, when you were reading Grey, Annal Grey Annals 1, um, I keep wanting to say annuals, which is just, that's like the word that wants to come out of my mouth and it's just not right. Um, when I'm sure when you were reading Grey Annals 1, you had the same experience I did, which is, okay, this is obviously where the chapter of the Sindar is drawn from practically word for word, right? I mean, uh, it, like 100% of the content of the, of the Sindar chapter uh, in the Silmarillion uh, is drawn from this. And we can see how, of course, Christopher has kind of taken it um, out of the context of this separate work called The Grey Annals. And he is he has intermingled it, right, with the accounts of Valinor and stuff, so that we have in the published Quintus Silmarillion section of the Silmarillion, you know, we have this roughly chronological story that is able to help us kind of track through the entire larger story of the first age of middle of the first age of middle earth the elder days in middle earth and um anyway so that's cool right that's really great but as i was saying there are several places in these later writings uh that we've been looking at together where all of a sudden just seeing, even though it's the same text I know, right? Like, there's nothing new here, in a sense. There were very few things in the reading for today, you know, reading up through page 36, you know, re re reading up through through basically that first manuscript draft um, of the Grey Annals. There was almost nothing there that was new to us. Like, we, if we read the Silmarillion, we know it already. To me, the remarkable elements, the most remarkable element of this entire thing um, is the context, right? When that text is removed from, uh, which, which chapter is it here in the Silmarillion? It's, uh, chapter 10, right? So, of course, it's of the Sindar, right? So we get some in chapter 4 of Thingol and Melian, of course, right? So we get of the coming of the elves and the captivity of Melkor. And this is, of course, in the published Silmarillion here, in the Quenta, in the Quenta Silmarillion. Then we get the Of Thingol and Melian chapter, right? Squeezed in there. 
And then we go of Eldamar and the Princes of the Eldalius, then we bounce back over to Valinor, right? And we're learning about the new generation of elves born in Valinor. We get the story of Feanor and the unchaining of Melkor, the Silmarils and the unrest of the Noldor and the story of the darkening of Valinor, and then the flight of the Noldor, including the Kinslaying. And then right as they're arriving back in Middle-earth, we get, oh, wait, hang on, time out, of the Sindar, right? Chapter 10. Then we, you know, we go back and we get the of the Sindar chapter, um, and then back to the sun and moon and the hiding of Valinor. Right, we go back to the narrative, which is principally focused on the Noldor. Um, so it's, you know, sort of interesting in the in its context, but it's sort of embedded, not even embedded. It's like um, interrupting the, in a sense, interrupting the larger story. Right, the the primary story of the Quintus Silmarillion is the story of the Noldor. And so the, you know, meanwhile in Beleriand chapter, meanwhile in Beleriand is the phrase that we used to use because um, in, in the Silmarillion film project, in the Silmarillion film project, when we were covering this period, we found it challenging to t- follow this model, right? To, 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 to do our theoretical adaptation based on the published Silmarillion. This was one of the challenges. Like, we want to cover what's going on in Beleriand. So we used to, uh, in-house, we used to refer to those as Meanwhile in Beleriand episodes that we would throw in every once in a while to be like, oh, what's going on with Thingol and Melian back in Middle-earth at this time? Um, but anyway, um, th- that's the way that the narrative flows here. But when this same narrative is taken out of the Silmarillion context, with which we're very, you know, many, you know, many of us, most of us, are very familiar with hearing it, and we read the same words, the same narrative, in this entirely new context. All of a sudden, they're sounding completely different to me, and I was, I was, I had the experience, you know, reading through the Grey Annals this week, preparing and kind of thinking through this as we've been doing. Um, and this is just, this is what I have loved about this series all, all the way through. Whenever we have been discussing this together, I feel like I'm reading this stuff for the first time. It's fantastic. Because I've never, this is the first time I've ever done this kind of a really thorough chapter by chapter, like let's read everything through and think everything through um, uh, of the history of Middle-earth. It's been so valuable to me. But anyway, as I'm reading through the Grey Annals this time, I am. I, it was like I. It was. It was like I'd never even heard this stuff before, right? Um, um, like, I, I, you know, it, it just as I say, like it was a like it was a completely new text that I'd never heard because of the context in which it was placed. Now, I wouldn't say that the context of this was the most radically transformative context I've experienced in, you know, the last couple volumes of the history of Middle-earth. Um, you may remember how much my mind was blown by the frame of the Aino Lindale, right? When we read the Aino Lindale together, the Aino Lindale stuff that's in the in Morgoth's ring, right? Um, with the frame of human and elf in discussion. And, oh my goodness, like that... Um, You'll remember me talking about how, like, I would, I could never read the Ainu in the way the same ever again. Like, the, it could totally transformed um, uh, so much of my own thinking about the Ainu in the way. 
this effect wasn't as transformative as that. Like it, I, you know, I wasn't like having my mind completely blown, and yet I found a completely different relationship with this. So, what exactly, what exactly am I talking about? What kind of? Uh, yes, Toller's exactly. It changes the Ainulindale, the narrative frame, like the speaker, the primary speaker of the Ainulindale. It changes it from sounding like a God to Moses thing to an elf lens on creation, and that is such a radical change. Such a radical change. I can't even say. Like it's, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Now this was not that kind of a radical change, but. Um, the change that I'm talking about, the change in context, is instead of just bringing us along to the, like, meanwhile in Beleriand, right, um, portion of this same kind of Noldor-focused narrative, when instead we have the frame that we were discussing at the very end of class last time, right, that this, this is the historical record of the Sindar. We're going to be getting in this narrative how the Sindar look at the world, right? What the entire experience of the Elder Days was like from their point of view. And there is nothing in the context of chapter 10 of the Quintus Omerillion in the published to prompt that kind of a that kind of a thought. Again, it's it's the, the similarity that it has with the Ainulindale thing is that um, the narrative framework of it is sort of presumed to be consistent with the rest of it, right? It's just like the same kind of um, vaguely elvish narrator um, that we're getting for the rest of the stuff. When I approached these same words and these same texts with that, with the prompting of these are the records of the Sindar, right? Literally of the Sindar, of the Sindar by the Sindar, right? Um, and it, I, I suddenly found myself, there were so many times I kept checking, right? I was reading this, I'm like, this is fresh. This is amazing. And I go back and I'm like, no, it's actually there, right? It's, it's actually not different. It's exactly word for word, the text that I'm used to. Um, it just feels completely different. Um, so anyway, that's the, this is where I get, I don't want, I don't want to suggest by taking it out of this frame, I totally understand what Christopher Tolkien was doing, and I agree with him. I think that trying to produce anything like what Tolkien seemed to be aiming for, especially in that period, in the in the in the period of his life bookending the Lord of the Rings, right? The time right after the Hobbit was published, or right before the Lord of the Rings was published, uh, during those times when he was in his where his greatest focus. He was, he was doing his primary work of preparing the Silmarillion for actual publication. I think had Christopher tried to replicate the form that Tolkien wanted it published in, the, you know, like the three volumes that Bilbo hands to uh, Frodo at the end of The Lord of the Rings, um, I, I don't think it would have worked. I don't think it would have been nearly as good. Um, I, I, what... I think that what Christopher gave us was more valuable, though, of course, I think the, of course, the true marvel and generosity of Christopher is that he not only gave us this, but he also then gives us the 12 volumes of the history of Middle-earth, and that I'm really grateful for that whole thing. Um, but um, anyway, um, I totally understand why Christopher did it, but... 
by taking the material that he put into the chapter of the Sindar and stripping it entirely of the textual frame that Tolkien placed it in, it totally changes the context and the force of that story. So let us go through some fascinating passages from this, many of which are going to be familiar from the published Silmarillion, but I want to be thinking about it within that framework that Tolkien provides. These are the historical records of the Sindar from the Sindarin point of view. Um, And when I was looking at it in that way, again, it was completely different. So, okay. Oop, skipped one. Um, We looked last time at how the name of Beleriand was connected with Balar, which was uh, the name of Ase, right? The the Sindarin name of Ase. Um, And that he and Uinen uh, used to hang out down at the island, in the, you know, the, at the Isle of Balar, the aptly named Isle of Balar. Is, you know, it's Alsace's island, right? That's where he hangs out. Um, and we were looking at the end of our discussion last time at the way in which Beleriand is defined by the River Syrian, um, radically defined by the River Syrian. This is one of the first things that we notice about the Sindarin focus. Um, the Sindar focus, let me say. I'll reserve Sindarin when I'm talking about the language. Uh, I will say the Sindar focus. Um, the Sindar focus is uh, on Syrian in ways in which we don't get that same sense in um, in the the Noldorin, the Noldor. Let me do the same thing. The Noldor narratives uh, that we uh, that we're more accustomed to reading, which make up the bulk of the published Silmarillion, right? Um, Beleriand is defined as those stretches of land on either side of Syrian, right? Uh, which is a, a radical, um, in my mind anyway, a radical um, shift in how I'm being invited to think about um, Beleriand. Um, and I have to admit, I, I, I realized when I was thinking about that reorientation, right? Like, what was it exactly that felt to me so different about thinking about Beleriand as the land on either side of the river Syrian. Um, the number one thing, what it made me realize is because of the primarily Noldor frame of the published Silmarillion, I had always thought of Beleriand first and foremost, like from the sea, right? Like the, you know, when the Noldor arrive um, and the, the arrival of the Noldor on the coasts, whether way up in the north, right, from the crossing of the Helcaraxa, or whether slightly further south, uh, where the Feanorians come, and then the spreading from there, right? So, so that, for instance, um, East Beleriand, out, you know, uh, where the March of Mithros was and stuff like that, you know, where the Feanorians ended up, um, Caranthia and such, um, by Lake Helivorn, that felt, that always felt to me like the far frontier, right? Like the, 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 the distant, the distant lands. Um, and the closer, you know, when you get closer to the coast, so like, you know, Hithlum and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the area around Mithrim, right? That's like the homeland, right? That's like the center in a sense, like sort of the narrative center. Um, and then, you know, everybody else is kind of out on the frontier. I, I, to some extent, I think that was kind of how my brain was sort of oriented because I was oriented to Beleriand primarily from that Noldor 
perspective, a Sindarin perspective, which begins right there at the heart of Beleriand in the Syrian, right? And it says, yeah, no, that's the center and on either side. So that the west coast of Beleriand is not, you know, ground zero, right? Is not like the, uh, you know, where you put the golden milestone, right? It's uh, in, instead that's that's the, the, the golden milestone um, of uh, Beleriand is at the sources of the river Syrian, right? Um, so anyway, uh, that was a really interesting piece of reorientation. Now, this is the, the follow-up passage. I'd been hoping to get to this at the end of last time, but um, uh, this was a funky perspective. Um, yeah, oh, wait, hang on. Toller's, I, you're right. Um, Toller says there was even a sense where the sea was fed by and given life by the river. Yeah, yeah. In, instead of it working the other way around? Yes, yes. The idea of the, the river Syrian being almost like... Um, like an artery, right? Which is, which is pumping life to the sea rather than having the sea itself be like the, the sort of central, um, uh, focal point. Right. Um, yeah, 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 absolutely. And that, what a fascinating glimpse that is, right? The Sindar, it's not that they're uninterested in the West, and they will eventually cross the sea, the survivors, which will be the distinct minority. But um, nevertheless, that's not their focus, right? In fact, they, um, you know, were not on the West Coast. They didn't focus on the sea at all. They seemed to avoid the sea, except for, of course, Kierd and the Shipwright. You know, he and his people built along the sea. But even that... Um, is sort of coming from and through the friendship of uh, of of Balar, um, you know, of Ose and Uinen there. Um, yeah, Fanaro, uh, Fanaro's Pizza says, I've been thinking a lot about how the Syrian is the focus of the realm of Beleriand, and that totally changed the way I looked at the map. In a way, you can see... Um, you can see uh, you can break up the whole region into three river systems, which correspond with the three realms of the Sindar and Nandor: Syrian and Narag for Doriath, Gelian for the Green Elves, and the rivers Nenning uh, and uh, Brithon for the Falathrim. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All of which flow into the Syrian and through the Syrian down into the sea, right? Um, so yeah, yeah, it's it's it is a very different way to orient and. You know, Fanaro, if you think about um, if you think about the way in which two things here, um, the way even even the way in which the the lands, you know, in everybody's favorite chapter of the published Silmarillion of uh, Beleriand and its realms, think of the focus on the rivers there. He's always talking about the rivers, not just as boundaries. Right, but as defining elements of those regions, like that perspective that you're describing there, Fanaro, is is exactly um, we we can see that embedded in the text. Though I agree with you, that was never the way that I saw the map. Right, the way that I the the way that I felt the map. If you see what I mean by that, um, um, it's not how I would have described it. You know, had I been describing the map of Beleriand to people. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, this, and so the, the second thing, um, that I would add to that is remember that all of the Teleri, all of the third people, this connection with music and with water, 
which of course we're accustomed to thinking of the, the Valinorian Teleri, right? The Teleri that do go into the West and live in Aliquilande and sail on the sea and live on the coast and everything. And then, of course, we're also used to thinking of Cairdan, the shipwright, living on the, the other coast, right? And also going on the sea and building ships. Um, but the rest of the Teleri, all of the Grey Elves and the Green Elves, right? All of the rest of those um, are still associated with music and water, even if we don't see them, you know, piping on the shores, like the shoreland pipers of old, the Solosimpi, which was the old name, remember, for the uh, the third kindred over in Valinor. Um, so again, they're all still focused on the water. Um, and that doesn't, ch- the fact that they lived way inland doesn't change that fact, right? That's I think, a reason why the rivers are so important. And when we think about those, think about how this informs, remember those references to what Olmo is up to and how Olmo remains connected with Middle-earth through all of the rivers and streams um, of Middle-earth? When we think about that from a Cinderin point, it, it just, again, it suggests something quite different, or rather, quite different about their relationship with Olmo. Presumably. I was going to say potentially, but I'd say presumably different in their relationship with Olmo. That that might have gone a little bit more of a... It might have been a bit more of a two-way street with the Sindar than it seems to have been with the Noldor um, most of the time. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, You're right, Fanaro, and it does also serve to make the Noldor really seem like intruders, somebody uh, who would have to share their sacred river space. Uh, Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, And think, Fanaro, about how this this changes and informs even the understanding about, like, when men come and live in Beleriand, right? And all the... I mean, it's just... it, It changes... The perspective, right? And again, so now we're, we're going to get the same story in the same words, almost, that we got uh, in the published Silmarillion. But wow, does it really feel different. Anyway, let me actually go on and read this slide, which I've been threatening to read for like 10 minutes now. In these regions, therefore, were fought the first battles of the powers of the West and North. And all this land was much broken. And it took then that shape which it had until the coming of Fionwe. Fionwe is, remember, Aonwe, uh, uh, his old name. The coming of Fionwe means the War of Wrath, right? So that's a reference to the end of the First Age. So um, when Fionwe comes leading the, the army of Valinor against Morgoth at the end of the age, they're going to wreck the joint, right? So that's why he says the shape which it had until the coming of Fionwe. So prior to Beleriand sinking into the ocean is uh, what that means. Anyway, so, for the great sea broke in upon the coasts and made a deep gulf to the southward. That is, during the time in the first battles of the powers of the west and north. So that whole inward chunk, right, the whole Bay of Balar was formed by the violence of the battles between the powers of the west and north. Okay, so, for the great sea broke in upon the coasts and made a deep gulf to the southward, and many lesser bays were made between the great gulf and Helcarexe far in the north, where Middle-earth and Amon came nigh together. 
Of these bays, the Bay of Balar was the chief, and into it the mighty river Syrian flowed down from the new-raised highlands northwards, Dorthonian and the mountains about Hithlam. Those are the highlands northwards in question. At first these lands upon either side of Syrian were ruinous and desolate because of the War of the Powers. But soon growth began there, while most of Middle-earth slept in the sleep of Yavanna, because the Valar of the Blessed Realm had set foot there, and there were young woods under the bright stars. These Melian the Maya fostered, and she dwelt most in the glades of Nan Elmoth, beside the river Kelon. There also dwelt her nightingales. Okay, so um, having said that almost everything we're going to read tonight is like in the published Silmarillion, I start with a passage which is definitively not in the published Silmarillion, right? Because instead in the published Silmarillion, we get the... We, we get other accounts of this, and Christopher didn't include this one because it's just a repetition of the other and might have been confusing, right? But this is the Sindarin version of the story of the war and its results, right? And there are three things that I find extremely remarkable about this description. First, they wrecked the place, right? It is the destruction of this land on either side of the River Syrian that is first noted. Not only did they wreck, like, the landmass, like all of these bays and everything, um, whole bits of the land sank into the ocean. Now, keep in mind, this is before the Sindar got there physically. I mean, like, they had not migrated into this part yet, so it's not like they're, you know, accusing the Valar of, uh, you know, of... Um, uh, trespassing on their land or something like that. Um, that's not the case, but we have the, 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 the story of the land of Beleriand begins in violence. It begins in destruction. And the consequence of the Valar coming to and setting foot on Beleriand was its it's wreck. It's wrecking. It's 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 wrecking. The lands upon either side of Syrian were ruinous and desolate because of the war of the powers. They wrecked the joint. But they also blessed the joint by being there. The violence of their war with Morgoth wrought destruction upon the land. But the tread of their feet blessed the land. Because the Valar of the Blessed Realm had set foot there, there, you know, growth began. Yavanna has placed her sleep upon all of Middle-earth, right? None of the plants are growing, none of the animals are stirring, yet she's tried to preserve them after the destruction of the lamps, when the light has gone away. But things grow in Beleriand after the destruction because the land was blessed not by the war of the powers but by the presence of the powers and that irony paradox i'm not sure exactly what to call it um the paradox of the simultaneous uh ruining and blessing of beleriand by the presence of the valar is such a fascinating glimpse into the Sindar perspective on the world, isn't it? And their relationship with the Valar. They're aware of the Valar. 
they're grateful to the Valar. They know to which, you know, so uh, this is one of the things, of course, about the Sindar, right? They, they, they never went to Valinor, so they didn't have the personal relationship with the Valar that the Noldor have. So when the Noldor come back and, you know, they're like, oh, yes, like, you know, I used to hang with Yvonne all the time. She's great. Um, the Sindar don't have that. But um, so it's reasonable to wonder what exactly was their relationship, their understanding of the Valar. How do they look at the Valar exactly? And this is a fascinating answer to that question. Um, they do revere them. They're aware, like they're not, they don't, you know, they don't have some kind of, um, you know, limited or uh, rudimentary understanding of who the Valar are and what their roles are. They know what Yavanna did and what she's responsible for. Um, they know that the very presence of the Valar blessed their land. But they also remember that the Valhar wrecked the joint when they were here. Right? Um, it's not a... Uh, the the sort of... Um, well, it would be too extreme to say the, you know, ambivalence of the Valar's blessing of the land. I mean, I don't want to just suggest that the Valar, you know, it's like it had a plus-minus effect on Middle-earth. They screwed up several times. Significantly. Um, but that's not to say that they're still not worthy of reverence and whatever. Um, or were just, like, villains or something. But, um, anyway. Um, it's, uh... So those are two things, the destruction and the blessing. The third thing that I want to, um, the third thing that I want to emphasize um, uh, is the role of Melian. And this is very striking, right? Um, and again, of this we get, when we get the Thingol and Melian chapter uh, in the Quintus Omerillion, right? Um, remember, so let me just read. I wasn't planning to do this, so I don't have it on a slide. But let me just read the first paragraph of the Thingol and Melian chapter uh, in the Quintus Omerillion. So remember, what has just happened, chapter three is of the coming of the elves. Um, so we have, it's describing the migration so we have, and the host of the Teleri passed over the Misty Mountains, um, being urged by Elway Singolo. Uh, thus, after many years, the Teleri came at last over Arid Luin and into the eastern regions of Beleriand. Right? So that's what's just happened at the end of the previous chapter. Then we get, Melian was a Maya of the race of the Valar. She dwelt in the gardens of Lorien, and among all his people there were none more beautiful than Melian, nor more wise, nor more skilled in songs of enchantment. It is told that the Valar would leave their works and the birds of Valinor their mirth, that the bells of Valmar were silent and the fountains ceased to flow, when at the mingling of the lights Melian sang in Lorien. Nightingales went always with her, and she taught them their song, and she loved the deep shadows of the great trees. She was akin before the world was made to Yavanna herself, and in that time when the Quendi awoke beside the waters of Quivianen, she departed from Valinor and came to the hither lands. And there she filled the silence of Middle-earth before the dawn with her voice and the voices of her birds. So, she's kind of a big deal. 
she is very she is very great. She is very beautiful. There's none more skilled in songs of enchantment. That seems like a big deal, right? So Melian is a Maya, but she's a very big deal. Um, and even in Valinor, among the rest of the Valor and Maiar, she's a big deal. Now, what is she doing in minute? What is her role? Uh, based on how it is contextualized in this text, how are we instructed to think of Melian? All we are told is, um, in that time when the Quendi awoke, she departed from Valinor and came to the Hitherlands. Why? Why did she depart from Valinor and come to the Hitherlands? Did she have any, you know, goal or anything? We're not told. All we're told is that she did fill the silence. So she filled the silence before the dawn with her voice and the voice of her birds. Okay, so she sang, and that's a big deal. Like, it's awesome, her singing, right? So she wanders over to Middle-earth for reasons that were not told. She, um, she sings, strolls around Middle-earth and sings. She may have, a like, a purpose in mind, but if she does, we're not told it. And the impression that I always got from my reading of the Silmarillion, based on what we're told, how, how this is contextualized here, because the second paragraph of this then moves into what the Teleri did, and then the meeting of, you know, when Thingol wanders into Nan Elmoth and sees her, and you know, is enchanted and they stand, uh, you know, transfixed for like centuries of the sun or whatever. Not, a, I mean, the sun isn't up yet, but you know what I mean. Anyway, for a lo- for a long time is what I'm saying. Anyway, um, it sounds like a chance meeting, right? Like she was wandering around, minding her own business, singing with her nightingales. He was going from one place to another place. Their paths crossed in Nan Elmoth, and hey, the rest is history. Um, look by comparison at what we're told, even just here, about Melian. These, the young woods under the bright stars, so growth has begun in Beleriand, in the aftermath of the battle, as as, as like apparently an unintended consequence of the war in Beleriand. There is no reason to think, based on what we read in the text here, that the Valar knew that they're setting feet in Beleriand was going to cause this blooming of the land. This seems to be a, a sort of accidental side effect, right? But Melian, seeing this, comes to Middle-earth specifically to foster the young woods under the bright stars. Melian is like, she's the caretaker of Beleriand. She has come, she has dedicated herself Fostered, that's an important word. Think of all the people who get fostered, um, you know, who, go, who are raised in foster families and things, right? To be, to be, she comes over to be the adoptive mother of Beleriand, right? That's a big deal. And she dwelt most in the glades of Nan Elmoth beside the river Kelon. So she wasn't just, didn't just happen to be there that day, right? She is the resident caretaker, the adopted mother of the continent. Not all of Middle-earth, but of Beleriand at the least. And Nan Elmoth is the center of her power. There also dwelt her nightingales. 
right? Melian is a huge deal. So in other words, like just get reading this passage and then and we'll, 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 we'll come back to this again in some other passages completely changed my whole view of like the girdle of Melian and everything like um, the kind of role that Melian plays in the rest of the Elder Days in Doriath. You see how much more naturally that flows from her role? She was always the caretaker, right? She's she's almost this is not quite the right expression. She is almost the genius loci of Beleriand. Right? Like, Melian is to Beleriand as Tom Bombadil is to the Old Forest. Almost. Not exactly, but almost. Right? Um, and that's pretty remarkable, I think. Um, and again, I just, I don't think that we exactly see that um, I don't think that we exactly see that emphasis in the published Silmarillion. I, I, again, it sounded like she was just wandering around singing, minding her own business with no particular, well, without particular business, right, that she was, that she was attending to. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. They're also Dwelter night, Nightingales. Yeah, so, um, Lissalinde, yeah. Um, little, one little footnote onto this. The, an enormously common mistake that people make, both in the reading of The Lord of the Rings and in the reading of Tolkien's Legendarium, is making restrictive and over-tidy categories in their minds the Valar are all really powerful, and they're in this power bracket. And the Maiar are all lesser, much lesser than they. They're minor spirits compared to the Valar, and they're all in this bucket, and they're all about the same strength. And then well below them are the Elves, right? Which are you know, they're not mortal in the sense that they, you know, they, they die, but they're, you know, they're incarnate beings, and so they're all in this bucket way below uh, the mire. It is way messier than that. It is way messier than that. There are some of the Valar who are way more powerful, greater and less. There's a huge range of power within each one of those brackets. Um, there's a huge range of power among the Valar, with Morgoth way at the top of that power bracket. So that Melkor is massively, massively, orders of magnitude more powerful than like the least of the Valar. The Maiar have a huge range. Huge range. And there are some Maiar who are like, like, what's the difference? Why are they not called Valar? You know, what, you know, I, I, that's not even really clear. But like Fionnwe, as he's called, or Aonwe, as he's, call, as he's called later, there is not much, you know, uh, uh, there is not a wide space between uh, Fionnwe slash Aonwe and the, you know, the lesser 
of the Valar. Melian seems to be being, we're being told similar things. This comes up all the time when people are talking about, like, Gandalf and Sauron and the Balrog, they're all Maiar, so they're all on a level playing field, right? Um, whereas, like, all of the elves are, like, way, way below them. It is not true. Like, some of the greatest of the elves are greater than... Uh, like, it is... It is um, there's a huge range. Some of the Maiar are going to be tiny, tiny little spirits who are going to be less powerful, less influential than, um, uh, than the Eldar. Um, anyway, so it's... It is way messier than people like to put them into neat, tidy categories. Um, and the text just does not use these categories in that way. But anyhow, okay. Um, right, JJ, exactly. This comes up exactly when we get the Witch King. Um, right, because like Gandalf is Gandalf is a Maya, and the Witch King, it's like a sorcerer, undead, wraith dude, whatever he is, right? But he's got to be like, you know, how could he... Um, how could he, you know, possibly match up to Gandalf? Well, the text tells us he can, right? Um, Gandalf's not sure who, you know, if, uh, um, you know, Gandalf is not sure if there were a Who Would Win book written about Gandalf and the the Witch King. Gandalf is not sure how that uh, how that story would end, and we'll never know. Um, so yeah, it's uh, yeah. Anyway, I this is like a public service message I have to give frequently, but. Listen, Linda, you're absolutely right that Melian's description in the published Silmarillion in that chat and paragraph that I just read is a, a wonderful example of where we can see the fuzziness of those boundaries. Anyway, let's keep going. All right. Year 1130. In this year, King Elwe Singolo of the Teleri was lost in the wilderness. As he journeyed home from a meeting with Finwë, he passed by Nan Elmoth, and he heard the nightingales of Melian the Maya and followed them deep into the glades. There he saw Melian standing beneath the stars, and a white mist was about her, but the light of Amon was in her face. Thus began the love of Elwë Grey Mantle and Melian of Valinor. Hand in hand they stood silent in the woods, while the wheeling stars measured many years, and the young trees of Nan Elmoth grew tall and dark. Long his people sought for Elwë in vain. Oh man, this paragraph is so good. This is one of those examples, right, where, like, this is in the text, right? This is, right, you know, if you kept reading from the paragraph where I stopped just now in the published Silmarillion, we'd get here, right? But think of how this paragraph now hits us. Melian is the, like, guardian spirit of Beleriand. She has taken upon herself to come, to move out of Valinor and to live here to establish her center of power here in Nan Elmoth, right here in Beleriand, here in Nan Elmoth. And she is like on, I was going to say on behalf of the Valor, which makes it sound like they elected her to go or something, which of course I don't mean. Um, but she is like the representative of Valinor, right? She is the, the Valinorian self-appointed, apparently. Valinorian guardian. We're not given her motives. We don't know what drew her here. We don't know what, if there was some sort of calling that she was answering, if this was, you know, what kind of expression of her own, um, you know, love and self and purpose uh, it was. We don't know. We're not given any of those motivations, but we know that she came and that she was the only one of the 
you know, or at least we, should, we don't know that there weren't other minor Maiar who came over and lived here. Um, but she is put in that place of becoming the caretaker of this place. And now King Elwe Singolo of the Teleri is lost in the wilderness and he sees her. He heard the nightingales of Meli and the Maya and follows them deep. So he's guided by her. He's drawn to her nightingales and her nightingales are connected with her song and her song is her power, right? The power that with that she exerts, the power that's described there. Um, and there he saw Melian standing beneath the stars, and a white mist was about her, but the light of Amon was in her face. So we've got the connection with the stars, right? Eldar, people of the stars, this is a big deal. So she is like him, right? There's this connection with him. You know, he's, uh, he's from Middle-earth, she's in Middle-earth, they're both living under the stars, right? But um, he's in love with the light of Amon. He is one of the ambassadors. He went to Valinor and he saw the light of the trees and he can't wait to get back to the light of the trees. And now here, all of a sudden, in this dark grove, under the stars, following the beautiful music of the nightingales, he sees now the light of Amon meeting him right here, right? The light of Amon, which has come to Middle-earth and taken up its residence here in Nen Elmoth. And that uh, next sentence, thus began the love of Elwe Greymantle and Melian of Valinor. The, the destined meeting of the one who is the king, King Elwe Singolo of the Teleri, right? The great king of all of their people. Um, and... Melian, the guardian. So this is like, this is the perfect, it's like this is the destiny of elves and Valar, right? Um, there's this sense here of, again, like, and this is where all of this stuff is where I'm, like, context, right? Um, I don't know about you, but although I always kind of liked the chapter of Thingol and Melian, despite the fact that it's enormously short. Maybe in early days I liked it because it was really short. But in any case, um, it's it's kind of random, right? I mean, it's this weird little chapter inserted um, like an interruption into the rest of the story and doesn't pay off until chapter 10, right? It's chapter 4 and it doesn't pay off until chapter 10. And we're like, oh, so mean, let's just leave them standing there, transfixed, right? And I'll see you again in 100 pages, right? And then we'll tell you more about Thingol and Melian. Um, and again, not bad-mouthing Christopher and his work, but again, that's the effect of the context in which we're given for it in the published Silmarillion, right? But here, this is paragraph 10 of the Grey Annals. Right, having established Beleriand, having established Melian, now we are getting, this is the beginning of days. This becomes this enormously important mythic story, which begins to, to have, um, as I was trying to express, this sense almost of destiny. Um, that is, this is like what it could have been, what it should have been. The elves remaining in Middle-earth and being invested 
in Middle-earth. They're under the stars, right? With the light of Amon shining on them, not from afar, and not them having to leave um, the light of uh, the, the, the Middle-earth in order to go to Amon, right? And, uh, um, and, and, and see it that way, right? No, the light of Amon has come to them. And now they can enjoy the light of Amon in her face and also Middle-earth. And she has come and she has dedicated herself to guarding Middle-earth. And he is now going to take up this mantle, right? The mantle of the Grey Elves. Um, and is going to be their king and leader as they settle down and they, the two of them together, the light of Amon and the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, this king of the Eldar... And between the two of them, they are going to establish and bless Middle-earth. Kind of feels like how it was drawn up, right? I mean, this is a biased account that we're getting, right? This is the Sindar account, and so no wonder that they would make uh, the marriage of Thingol and Melian seem like the only people who are doing it right, right? The only people who really get it. Uh, But that's how it begins to sound hand in hand they stood silent in the woods while the wheeling stars measured many years and the young trees of Nan Elmoth grew tall and dark instead of sounding like a weird interruption instead of just feeling that Elway's been yanked out of the narrative right that he's just fallen by the wayside in the story of the migration that we're getting in the Quintus Ilmerillion um, instead this moment the the time, the wheeling stars measuring many years around them. Um, it's like the solemnization of their connection, not only to each other, but to the land. Um, and again, the whole tenor of it begins to feel um, very different, very different when placed within this context. All right, let's keep going. Ossé therefore persuaded many to remain in Beleriand, that is, many of the Teleri who did not go across uh, uh, on the on the island. And when King Olwë and his host were embarked upon the isle and passed over the sea, they abode still by the shore. And Ossé returned to them and continued in friendship with them. And he taught to them the craft of shipbuilding and of sailing. And they became a folk of mariners, the first in Middle Earth, and had fair havens at Eglarest and Brithombar. But so, but some dwelt still upon the Isle of Balar. Girdan the shipwright was the lord of this people, and all that shoreland between Drengist and Balar that he ruled was called the Phallus. But among the Teleri were none yet so hardy of heart, and of their ships none so swift and strong that they might dare the deeps of the great sea or behold even from afar the blessed realm and the light of the trees of Valinor. Wherefore, those that remained behind were called Moraquendi, elves of the dark. Okay. Now, one thing that is very noticeable to me. Um, it's very noticeable to me here that we're calling him Ase. Um, which is his Quenya name and not Balar, which is his Sindarin name, from which the name of the Isle of Balar, and indeed it turns out the entire continent uh, uh, of Beleriand um, is drawn. Um, but um, so it's interesting that they're using the Quenya name here. Um, this is explicable, of course 
from the textual context that we were given earlier on, because we know that this account that we're reading, these gray annals, though they were originally written entirely from the Cinderin point of view, um, went through an editorial process in the havens of Balar at the end of the first age in combination with the you know, the refugees from Gondolin and uh, Nargothrond that ended up there. So um, there is Noldoran influence here. Um, and I can only presume that Ase is being used instead of Balar as a, in general when the stories are being told in order that the, like, the link between these stories and the other stories might be most clear. Although the Grey Annals are a text to themselves and you know the sin the cinder the sindar record of these events they were intended explicitly by tolkien and presumably also by their elvish redactors later on or the elvish editors um who then took them off into the west uh that this should sit alongside the other accounts right so this this isn't supposed to be like the one only true account which when you're supposed to ignore everything else it's only it was ever ever going to be one volume right or one section of a volume um in a larger collection of works that told the whole history of Beleriand um so i so i that the elvish editors some noldor some cinder uh, some cinder um would have um uh asserted some continuity by calling him Ase throughout all accounts. Again, I can explain it on that basis. Um, but it does feel that there is, uh, like, um, a bit of, um, like, intrusion, in a sense, into the story of an older in perspective. Just like the use of the Quenya there feels that way just a little bit. Um, but yeah, First Fish, uh, I, I think that's a very important... Point. Um, going back to Thingol and Melian for a second, she says, for the Noldor, um, the Valar... So for the Noldor, the Valar kidnapped them and changed them. For the Sindar, a Valar came among them and loved them and blessed them and became one with them. No wonder the Sindar took a moment to tell the story and to gloat about it. Um, yeah, it's a very different relationship with Amon, isn't it? Instead of being taken out and taken to Amon, and again, like, cheerfully and stuff, right? The idea of it being something like a kidnapping, that's a later, uh, you know, Morgoth-influenced version of the narrative, right? But um, uh, but still, like, instead of being taken away, uh, it, it is a radically different relationship with the Valar, right? Instead, Valinor comes and dwells among them in the form of Melian. Um, she is like the Valar to them, right? Um, their great king marries someone who is very much like their local goddess. And the two of them establish the perfect reign, right? I mean, I, conceptually, I'm not saying... I mean, we all know the story of Thingol and Melian, and it's, it ain't going to be perfect all the time. I'm not s trying to say that. But but the origin story, right? The mythic version of this that we get. The vision of what was, of what 
could have been, what should have been in a sense, right, um, is exactly that. This perfect marriage of Valinor and Eldar, of Eldar and the land, right? Um, of Valar and the land, in a sense. It's, um, it's very profound, I think. Um, very profound. But anyways, back to this passage here. Um, so, two things that I want to emphasize briefly. Um, one is the Moraquendi, Elves of the Dark. Um, there's the sense, the sense I've always had with the word Moraquendi, the title Moraquendi, Elves of the Dark. It was always like a. Mm. All right, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna use this very carefully. Um, a purely negative definition, and I don't mean to say that they mean nothing but bad by it. I mean negative in the sense of defining what is not right. That the the those who are left behind uh, in Middle-earth are defined as Moraquendi, like the elves that never went to the light. The elves who have been deprived of something, right? Like that, negative in that sense. Like of defined by what they don't have only. Um, but there's a little more to it here. Again, th this passage feels a little bit more like, uh, like it has a little bit more of a Noldoran flavor to it to me, um, but, or like a Noldoran influence to it. And yet, even within that context, those that remain behind were called the Moraquendi. They chose to remain in Beleriand. That's where we start. Ossie persuaded many to remain in Beleriand. They're choosing Ossie, their friend. They are choosing Elway. Many of them are still searching for Elway. They are choosing their king, who is soon going to be revealed. It's, it's like their own choice is going to be rewarded. Not only by having their king, Elway, restored to them, but him transformed, restored to him. Him, there's... Thingol is going to undergo something like an apotheosis that is almost like an elevation to divine status. So when they find El, they don't just find Elway, right? This is not just like a search and rescue and they're looking for, um, you know, uh, to stumble across Elway half-starved living in a lean-to in the woods, Right where they can, from which they can rescue him, right. Instead, we get this like apotheosis of the quasi-divine Elway, King Elway, um, who has been elevated out of normal Elvish status and joined with Melian of Valinor herself, the guardian goddess of Beleriand. Um, you know, it really. I keep thinking back to the old, uh, you know the king and the land are one uh, thing from some Arthurian traditions. Um, Thingol, yeah, 
he marries the land in a sense, right? If she is like the genius loci of all of Valerian, um, what's he now? <laughs> Goldberry, I guess. But anyway, um, uh, yeah. Anyway, the point is, they've chosen. They're not just left behind. They don't just fall by the wayside. They're not just, well, faint-hearted loiterers or anything like that. Not that anyone would call them that. That'd be rude, right? But, um, but that's not what they've done. They have chosen the darkness of Middle-earth. And when they choose it, what do they find? That it's not actually dark. It's dark in the sense that, they, no, they're not going to get to Amon. They're not going to see the light of the trees themselves. They'll only see it reflected in the face of Melian, just as Thingol sees it now. But they'll still see it, right? They, they, will, they will have their own kind of light, that light taken and brought to them and infusing their entire realm and uh, empowering and um, ennobling them as well themselves. So yes, they're Moraquendi, Elves of the Dark because they remain behind, because they chose this. And they're blessed for choosing it, right? That's the sort of perspective that we get here. Whereas, again, the phrase Moraquendi feels always like a, a, a polite sort of... Um, uh, a polite sort of insult. Or less polite at times, Right. Yes, it is not so dark here. JJ, that's just what I was thinking of, the healing of Theoden there. Um, yes. Uh, when uh, when the Sindar go forth and look abroad, they find that it is not so dark here. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. Then the birth of Luthien. Holy cow. Year 1200. It is not known to any among elves or men when Luthien, only child of Elwë and Melian, came into the world, fairest of all the children of Iluvatar that were or shall be. But it is held that it was at the end of the first age of the chaining of Melkor, when all the earth had great peace and the glory of Valinor was at its noon, and though Middle-earth for the most part lay in the sleep of Yavanna, in Beleriand under the power of Melian there was life and joy, and the bright stars shone like silver fires. In the forest of Neldoreth it is said that she was born, and cradled under the stars of heaven, and the white flowers of Nefredil came forth to greet her, stars from the earth. Oh, man. Oh, man. Um, again, you hear that? Moraquendi, right? Elves of the darkness. Too bad for them. Boy, did they miss out. In Beleriand, under the power of Melian, there was life and joy, and the bright stars shone like silver fires. Doesn't sound so bad. Right? And Luthien becomes the embodiment. There's she didn't just win the beauty pageant, you know? She's the fairest of all the children of Iluvatar. Which is ironic, of course, because she has black hair, but um, she's the fairest of all the children of Iluvatar. There's a good reason why she's the most beautiful of all the children of Iluvatar. Once again, there's this sense of the Sindar, and possibly the Sindar alone, are doing it right. 
this Luthien, this is how it's supposed to be. Look at that. Look at that. She is the embodiment of this harmony that we see nowhere else. Valar and Eldar together under the stars in Middle-earth. Oh my goodness. And look what happens as an expression of this. The white flowers of Nefredo come forth to greet her as stars from the earth. The bright stars shining like silver fires above. Who could want more? Who could want better? Right? And when she is born, the earth responds. And now the bright stars shining like silver fires are reflected in the very earth, right? As the, as the, the white flowers of Nefredo uh, are grown and flower around her, right? She is like the embodiment of the blessing of Middle-earth that comes when the elves commit to being in and being a blessing to Middle-earth, kind of like it looks like they were supposed to have been. Again, that's the corollary, right? If the... Um, and I know from a certain perspective I might be about to sound like I'm speaking with the tongue of Melkor here, but if the Valar made a mistake in taking, if they were wrong to take the elves out of Middle-earth, which Tolkien says most of the time. Um, I'm, of course, quoting that one passage where he turns it around the other direction and says that it's a lie. Of, it's, you're speaking with the tongue of Melkor if you say that. Um, but most of the time, Tolkien's narratives do agree on that point, that it was a mistake. Sometimes very strongly, they state, that it was a mistake for the elves to take, for the Valor to take the elves out. And if that is true... If that is true, um, then the obvious corollary to that fact is that the elves were meant to remain in Middle-earth like the Sindar do, that the Sindar are doing it right, and Melian's presence among them, guiding them, blessing them, and through them blessing the land. This blessing which is embodied in Luthien, her daughter, the fairest of all the children of Iluvatar, right? Um, this is what doing it right looks like. And yes, Tullers, oh my goodness, how much cooler does the fact that she's going to join herself then to a mortal man come to look through this lens, right? Not to mention, um, uh, not to mention, Tullers, that... Um, how tragic her father's reaction to that, right? Um, that single... I mean, it, in any version of the story, there's a painful irony, right? Um, uh, you know, when he's like, you are not worthy to be joined to my daughter, and, you know, Melian's got to be looking sideways at him like, dude, who's talking? <laughs> Who's talking about who's worthy of their wives here, right? Um, don't you feel a little conspicuous saying that? Right? That irony is there in every version of the story. But within this context now, we get this um, a real tragedy, right? Because you're right. We do get a glimpse. That we can glimpse ahead, knowing what's coming. We can glimpse ahead. Oh, my goodness. If, if Luthien is the perfect fulfillment and perfect embodiment of this investment in Middle-earth by the elves and, and Valinor, right, coming together, 
then Luthien and Baron could the, the then bringing together the fairest of all the children of you know the, like the 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 distillation of this perfect elvish existence right with the newcomers oh man like what can come from that but i mean talk about doing it right that would have to be then the ultimate sort of fulfillment or at least the next big step of the fulfillment of Iluvatar's plan for Middle-earth through the children Right. And yet it's going to happen, but also going to kind of get tempered or complicated or uglified in some ways by the by the context. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Anyway, let's keep going. Year 1300. Uh, So we're talking about Minogroth, right? Um, so the creatures of Morgoth are causing trouble. Danger has come to Beleriand. And so they make the stronghold. Look at how the description of Minogroth sounds now in this new context. But the elves also had part in that labor that is with the dwarves. And elves and dwarves together, each with their own skills, there wrought out the visions of Melian. Images of the wonder and beauty of Valinor beyond the sea. Stop. Holy cow. Right? Let me read that again. Yeah, again, you hear this? Like, doing it right, right? But the elves also had part in that labor, and elves and dwarves together, each with their own skills, there wrought out the visions of Melian, images of the wonder and beauty of Valinor beyond the sea. Oh, man. The... The, the free peoples of Middle-earth working together in harmony to make something beautiful and for defense, right? To, 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 to make something beautiful in the act of protecting that which is beautiful. And look how it's enriched by Valinor, right? They, they together are working the visions of Melian, images of the wonder and beauty of Valinor beyond the sea, Right? No light of Amon, no problem. Moraquendi indeed, right? Um, man, again, that's... There's like the Sindar utopia. And again, I contrast it with my impression from the published Silmarillion when we get to... Now we're in chapter 10, right in the of the Sindar chapter. And when I'm reading about the making of, Mel- of Menegroth. It's cool and stuff, right? Like, oh, great. Elves and dwarves work together. That's nice, right? It isn't, it, you know, it's, that's that's lovely, especially, of course, knowing um, that that ain't gonna last, right? Um, we can appreciate, like, the beauty of this, right? Um, but, um, but, boy, is, does it hit harder than that, right? This, like, perfect Middle-earth utopia is now extended to the dwarves. Now bringing the dwarves into that community. Oh, wonderful. Now, the description. The pillars of Menegroth were hewn in the likeness of the beaches of Orame, stock, bough, and leaf, and they were lit with lanterns of gold. The nightingales sang there, as in the gardens of Lorien, and there were fountains of silver and basins of marble and floors of many-colored stones. Carven figures of beasts and of birds there ran upon the walls, or climbed upon the pillars, or peered among the branches entwined with many flowers. 
And as the years passed, Melian and her maidens filled the halls with webs of many hues, wherein could be read the deeds of the Valar, and many things that had befallen in Arda since its beginning, and shadows of things that were yet to be. That was the fairest dwelling of any king that hath ever been east of the sea. And in the context of the Quenta Silmarillion, its description is so brief that that last sentence, that was the fairest dwelling of any king that hath ever been east of the sea, it's one, I, I can accept it. I can grant a sort of intellectual assent to that notion. But I don't feel it when I'm reading the published Silmarillion because it's this one brief mention in this one short chapter, which is an interruption of the main narrative, you know what I mean? But again, now here, within this context, this this is just when it sounded like the sort of perfection, the sort of utopia of Middle-earth was being disrupted by the invasion of creatures of evil and violence, right? Um, that sounds bad, right? That sounds like the happy days are over. And yet it ends up bringing about something more beautiful than we could possibly have imagined. Man, it's almost like somebody anticipated that, right? It brings about this new harmony of the elves and dwarves working together and bringing into being this beautiful, beautiful thing. Look at, um, look at how vibrantly alive everything is described as being, right? Everything he's describing is carved in stone. And yet, right, we have... Um, the pillars are like trees that are so like that it's like you're in the gardens of Lorien themselves. Not just, you could mistake it for a real tree, but no, like you would think you're not just by any old real trees, but that you were in the most perfect and beautiful garden on in Arda, right? That is the gardens of Lorien in Valinor. The fountains of silver, which also should remind us of Lorien as well, and basins of marble. And then the figures of beasts and birds that are running on the walls and climbing up the pillars and peering among the branches. Not actually moving, I think, right? But again, all of this, all of this, uh, it's like this whole little second creation. And the way in which sort of the the sub-creative, the combined sub-creative efforts of the elves and dwarves, it's like they're they're able to make this not just a second Arda, right? This uh, this little sub-creation which you can mistake for the world outside, right? But it becomes itself a vision of Valinor itself. Who needs Valinor when you have Menegroth? They have made their own Valinor, their own Lorien here in Middle-earth. Um... And it's possible, tellers I could get behind the possibility of actual moving uh, sculptures with elf magic uh, being what it is, um, a fairy and drama of actual birds and beasts and uh, and things. Quite possibly. Quite possibly. Um, Genertanus, I agree. Gondolin had better PR than Menegroth, right? Uh, Gondolin gets all the... Uh, it gets all the press, right? Uh, for being the... Uh, this beautiful, tragically lost city, but man, again, the role that this plays in the history as we've seen it, just incredible. 
And ere long, in the year 1330, according to the annals that were made in Doriath, the evil creatures came even to Beleriand, over passes in the mountains, or up from the south through the dark forests. Wolves there were, or creatures that walked in wolf shapes, and other fell beings of shadow. Among these were the Orkor, indeed, who after ruin, who after wrought ruin in Beleriand. But they were yet few and wary, and did not smell out, and did but smell out the ways of the land, awaiting the return of their lord. Whence they came, or what they were, the elves knew not then, deeming them to be Avari, maybe, that had become evil and savage in the wild, in which they guessed all too near, it is said. Therefore Thingol bethought him of arms, which before his folk had not needed, and these at first the Naugrim smithied for him, for they were greatly skilled in such work, though none among them surpassed the craftsmen, the craftsmen of Nogrod, of whom Telkar the smith was the greatest in renown. A warlike race of old were all the Naugrim, and they would fight fiercely with whomsoever aggrieved them, folk of Melkor, or Eldar, or Avari, or wild beasts, or not seldom their own kin, dwarves of other mansions and lordships. Their smithcraft indeed the Sindar soon learned of them, yet in the tempering of steel alone, of all crafts, the dwarves were never outmatched even by the Noldor, and in the making of mail of linked rings, which the Enfang first contrived, their work had no rival. Oh, sorry, the webs of many hues. Um, tapestries. Uh, totally tapestry. Sorry, I forgot about the tapestries. Um, let me go back for a second. The tapestries, yes, uh, fill the halls with webs of many hues. Tapestries, definitely tapestries, wherein could be read the deeds of the Valar. What does that sound like? It's like Mandos, right? Where the story of the entire world is kept. So both of the Feanturi, right? Lorien and Mandos um, combined. Right, the uh, the memory of its like Menegroth becomes like the center and the preserve, like the celebration and preservation of the story of Middle Earth. Right? Yeah. Sorry, I forgot to talk about the tapestries. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Really, really interesting little detail. Since we've already been prompted to think of Lorien, we're not explicitly prompted to think of Mandos. But again, given the connection between Lorien and Mandos, that is, Irmo and Namo being brothers, the Feanturi, um, it's interesting that we do kind of see both of those things, especially since the the, the role of those tapestries, um, uh, wherein could be read the deeds of the Valar and many things that had befallen in Arda since its beginning, the chronicling of history, right? The, 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 the keeping of memories, um, in the tapestries that are on the walls of Menegroth is like the um, the uh, historical tapestries, the the, 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 the the history webs uh, that are in Mandos as well. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Back to um, the ending of the Ages of Peace. Um, notice. Um, Notice the business about the dwarves. Thingol bethought him of arms. You know what would be handy? Weapons. We've never had weapons. We might need weapons. We might want weapons to defend ourselves and to defend the land. Let's talk to the Nogrim, to the Nogrim about this. The Nogrod. The Nogrim of Nogrod about this. Um, our good buddies, the Nalgrim. Um, now, notice that um, the Nalgrim 
the dwarves. They're a little sketchy from the Sindar perspective, clearly, right? This little aside about the dwarves, like, you have to realize it's as if the narrator's telling us, right? Like, um, so the Nalgrim, they were a warlike race of old. They used to fight all the time. And they would fight with whomsoever aggrieved them. This idea of grievance, right? That's not a good look. That a sense of personal grievance would lead you to violence in order to get your own and to satisfy your own envy or greed or pride or whatever. It's not a great look, right? And the fact that they would fight with they would fight with folk of Melkor, okay, or Eldar, not great, Avari, um, maybe they provoked them or something. Wild beasts, okay, that might happen, and not sell them their own kin. Okay, so basically everybody. Like, there's nobody they won't fight, <laughs> essentially, is what it's... The only people that don't make this list are the Valar themselves, right? Um, so, um, I think that... Um, now, again, we are clearly being told the Elvish perspective on this. I do not doubt the dwarves would explain this differently. But from the perspective of the Sindar, there is a violent tendency, a, a tendency towards, like, aggrievedness, which will show itself forth in violence among the Nalgrim, and clearly the Sindar cannot approve of this. Right? Clearly they do not approve of this. This is, um... Uh, this is not... This is not great. Yeah. Um, First Fish, I do agree... Um, in Silmarillion terms, it is said is code for IMHO, right? in my humble opinion. Um, yes, yes. Um, Silmarillion narrators use the phrase it is said in a very similar way to modern internet posters using IMHO. Yes, yes. Um, I think that's a fair thing to say. Anyway, but back to the dwarves. Given that, given the f- and there's no, no explanation is given of this. Like, did something happen? Did the dwarves used to be nicer and then they got nasty for like some understandable reason? Like, they don't know. They don't know, right? No explanation of this is given. Just the fact that the dwarves have issues, right? Issues which frequently um, burst forth into violence, which is something that is very alien to the Sindar. No, they don't even have weapons. They, you know, like, this is, we've only just reached the moment where Thingol is like, hey, we might need weapons. Um, that's how peaceful their realm has always been. They have lived at peace. As we've, it's all about marriage and harmony and flowers springing, right? That's been the lives of the Sindar. It's been this perfect, peaceful, uh, uh, life full of like love and harmony, right? And then there's the dwarves over there getting into it all the time, right? But look at what is the result? Is this a fall? Is this a fall uh, from the gold? Is the golden age over? And now that the Sindar are taking up arms, 
Now they too are like walking down the path towards destruction. That's not what we get. They're bethinking themselves of our, things. Are, the peace has ended. They are going to have to fight now. But what is the first consequence of this is joining with the dwarves again in craftsmanship, learning of the dwarves. And there's this sense that I get um, in the dwarves dedicating their craftsmanship of weaponry to arm the Sindar against um, the orcs and the wolves or creatures that walked in wolf shapes, right? The wolves and werewolves, um, though that word isn't used there. Um, all of these evil creatures which are now invading even Beleriand itself, um, in now equipping them, it's like the dwarves... Um, not militaristic, um, combative impulses are being, from the perspective of the Sindar mind, sort of domesticated, right? Um, put to, like, even the, like, the least attractive element, well, second least attractive element, the least attractive element of their neighbors was their ugly language, right, apparently. Um, but, uh, in addition, um, the, uh, the, their tendency to violence. Well, now even that's becoming in its way a beautiful thing. And their smithcraft is being praised and appreciated. And no one ever surpassed them. Like, good has come from it. All of that time that they spent fighting among themselves and with beasts and with elves occasionally, which is not cool, but... Um, but anyway, now good is coming of it. And once again, like peace and harmony and defense against the invasion of evil. Um, it's not exactly like uh, domestication of the dwarves. That'd be like way, way, way overstating it. But, um, but it's like the first consequence of the invasion of evil is the sort of harnessing in this positive and harmonious way of these a combative impulses and b um craftsmanship which supplies those combative impulses um by the dwarves um yeah um yeah james says i vaguely remember a passage in the nature of middle earth where he's trying to work out how passages like this work out with his concept of elves as hunters did they hunt with other weapons before they got them from the nalgrim James, I think that is exactly, that is a perfect example of, um, uh, that is a perfect example of the kind of question he is not asking yet. That's exactly that. What we talked about, gosh, was it only last week? The, the, the shift in narrative focus of the stories, um, another way that I would talk about that, that I often talk about this kind of thing is the the stories that Tolkien is writing begin to ask different questions than they asked before. Right now, this is this paragraph does not invite us to ask because it, it's opened up in two different ways, right? Well, hang on, wait. Um, excuse me, Mister Sindar narrator. Uh, did they never hunt beasts before? Because you're making it sound like they never had weapons made with metal at all, right? Um, and you're also making it sound and pointing out how like weird it is that the dwarves like 
fight wild beasts like that's deviant in some way um you know was like uh you know the Beleriand of the Sindar just a you know vegetarian's paradise prior to this do they not like ever commit acts of violence against wild beasts those questions if we if we think if we're thinking in those terms right we might want to ask those questions but i think that those questions are alien to the, this text is not asking that question right um it's not even interested in that kind of question like there was peace and harmony there with the elves there was less harmony there was fighting with the dwarves right now it's time for the elves to start fighting because the orcs are invading and so the elves and dwarves are going to come together in harmony still in order to prepare uh for the defense of their lands um and if you're raising your hands saying but 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 what about hunting how did that fit in um this text will not answer that question. This text is not interested in that question. It's not talking about that kind of thing. It's to use the terms that I was using when we were talking about the nature of Middle Earth. It's doing all myth, no world building yet, really. I mean, it's not really asking world building questions in this way. This, I think, is the huge difference between the work that he was doing from 1937 and earlier. And which he still... This, remember, this is still... This is the first manuscript, right? So this is still the first wave. Right after... This is like 1950 that he's writing this. And in that first period, right after he finishes The Lord of the Rings and before it get, gets published, in that first really, really productive wave that Christopher Tolkien spoke of, he is still thinking in these old terms. And he's not doing all of the... Um, he's not doing all of the world-building stuff yet, like right? the sort of focus on that yet, right? Um, but as you say, James, the time's going to come when he's going to start asking that question. Um, and he's going to want to try to figure that out. But that time's not yet. That time is not yet. And I see no evidence that this text is even vaguely interested in that question. Because um, it's not the kind of question that it's asking. It's not the kind of story that it's telling. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Oh, ouch. Fedor asks, how did the elves... <laughs> his, 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 he, he, he has an even more uh, disruptive question. How did the elves hunt the petty dwarves <laughs> before this? <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Not going there. No, but but yeah, ex that these are exactly the kinds of questions. He's he's not answering. That. We'll get we'll get dude, later. <laughs> later. <laughs> later. Um yeah. Um yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, we'll take that up with meme later on. Um Oh, why is he calling them the Enfang instead of the Longbeards, uh, Fanaro? Um, uh, I don't know. I think it's just a linguistic thing. Um, 
I don't think he was not using the word then. I think it's just a, 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 a yeah, I think it's a linguistic thing, primarily. Um, he is talking about mm, let's see what more we learn from this as we move forward. It is interesting because of course, like, it's post-writing of the Lord of the Rings now, right? So at least the future destiny of the people of the Longbeards, including, by the way, their ancestral home at Khazad-dûm, um, is now established, right? In, like, the Quentin Older Inwa, back in 1930, when we were getting the Longbeards doing wicked things, um, they were not yet, you know, the ancestors of Gimli uh, at that point. So, um, uh, but um, now they definitely are. And the Longbeards have been established historically in ways that they were obviously not before. Um, so let's let's keep an eye on how that goes. Because, to, I mean, to this point, like, in the earlier writings, the Longbeards were pretty much like the default dwarves. I mean, they were spoken of as if they were just one of the clans, but, like, they were they were like ye generic dwarf uh, in most of the earlier writings. Um, that's obviously going to change. They're no longer generic, right? Um, so uh, let's see. Let's see how that changes. And we're pretty much out of time. Let me peek ahead. What's next? Oh, yeah, let's save the gruesome and palpitating tales. Yeah. Okay, we'll get there. Um... Okay, right before the end of the Age of Peace, like as the Ages of Peace are ending, seems like a good place to, to stop. But speaking of gruesome and palpitating tales, um, read through uh, up to and including the account of the Near Nithor Nuyad, um for next time. Uh, so that is on, uh, I'm looking at page 79 uh, in the published text, uh, year, four, year of the Sun, 473, um, paragraph 254. That's where I want you to stop. Well, you can go on however long you want, of course. Um, but that is the furthest point at which I shall endeavor to get. That is right before we begin. Remember he talked, uh, Christopher talked in the prologue, or the, the foreword, rather, about um, how much Tolkien was going to focus on the Turin story. So that's right before the beginning of the Turin story. Um, so we'll see if we can get from here up to the beginning of the Turin story next time. Maybe we can. We'll see how we do. But anyhow, read up through there, uh, and then we'll, we'll do that, and then we'll move on to Turin after that. So thanks, everybody. Um, really fun. Isn't this eye-opening? If, even if it's not mind-blowing... It's at least eye-opening, right? You just see these things in such a new way. It's just incredible. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining me. A lot of fun. And I'll see you guys next Wednesday. Bye now.